I think one of them was wearing like pajama bottoms and I was like, oh, is that like a thing now? And she was like, they're not pajama bottoms. And I was like, they just look like that. Okay. And are those slippers? <laughs> <laughs> she literally. Uh, no, these aren't slippers. These are moccasins. Okay. Head to toe. They were jammies. I'm going jammies. Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I am your host, Chris Savage, and I am joined this time <laughs> by Sylvie LeBeau. This well, and time. every time. This time and every time. And now for something new and different. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, you're going to be shocked. Sylvie and I are still recording the podcast together. And you're still listening or watching. Thanks for joining us, everyone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We have a really fun guest today. We do. We have a very fun guest. Nate Abbott is here. And Nate is the head of product at Front, which is a customer communication platform that combines email and apps and all your customer communications into a single view. He was at Airbnb before, he had his own start before that. And it was a fun conversation talking about really like scaling products, scaling product teams, scaling product insights. Um, a lot of the stuff that's like the hard, crazy, important stuff that you need to do when you're building a product. It was deep, it was in the weeds. Our product heads are out there, not like heads of product, like product enthusiasts. You see, people, product heads, like people who define themselves as product heads. <laughs> yeah. They're going to okay. love it. Yeah, that'll translate well. I think we all got that. We all got that. <laughs> They're going to love it. The product heads are going to love this one. <laughs> Me trying to be cool. <laughs> that's, that's a classic move. Yeah, That's a classic yeah. move. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Actually, that's got me talking too loud. Trying to be cool. Trying to talk to Gen Z again, you know? Again. How's that going for you? Yeah. It's rough. It's rough, man. Like, I shot some pool over the weekend. Mm hmm yeah, I'm sure that's what all the Gen Zers are doing. Well, let's go to the old pool hall, everyone. I think it's cool again. I think, you know, oh, pool, really? pool uh -oh. is cool again. I just outed myself. Like, <laughs> so, loser doesn't play pool. This cusper, yeah. this geriatric millennial cusper doesn't know a thing about pool. But yeah, I felt like real out of practice. Just having a simple chat Convo? with the Gen Zers. Yeah. Yeah, I think everyone's a little out of practice. I don't mean with Gen yeah. Zers. I just think in general, the like opening, closing, opening, closing. You can see people, you can't. You go outside, you're inside. I remember this was talking about when, when we first had vaccines. It was like, people don't know how to be social anymore because yeah. it's an actual thing you have to, you don't realize, but you just like, you're- I used you're to be good at it. I yeah. was pretty good. I know, and now you're terrible. Now I'm terrible. <laughs> now I'm, I'm like Larry David. I just say like the worst thing every time. Okay. Anyhow, how to be cool again. If you have tips, listeners, I'm I'm ready. Sylvie is ready. You're ready I'm for ready. all tips, all lingo, all music, all dance moves. You're ready for it all. <laughs> Speaking of people who do still have their social abilities, Nate, Nate our guest today. He has them. He, he has them. He has them in spades. He has them in spades. He's still, he's still able to hold up a conversation with someone and talk about work and talk about life and also explain uh, some new home tech in there. I don't really want to reveal right before he gets into it, but um, don't reveal. I learned a lot. I know. Well, let's get into the interview with Nate and what got him talking to us.
Nate, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great to meet you. It's uh, great to be here. I'm really excited to talk to you. As we're getting ready today, you know, with that mic volume, you've got, <laughs> you don't even have a tripod on that mic. You got a bipod over there. Very advanced tech. I mean, I think, you know, one thing as a product manager, you really get good at is sort of, you know, what's the best product I can build with the things I have today, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've done my fair share of balsamic mock-ups and uh, hacking together JavaScript myself. And so, you know, this is uh, old hat. It's, it's nice to see it happening just like right as we get into the show. Um, and obviously, this show is called Talking Too Loud. We've already been talking about how we're going to talk too loud. But we like we like to start the show by hearing about, you know, what's got you talking too loud right now? What's got you excited? What can't you shut up about? Well, I, I love this show's title because I am notorious for talking too loud. My wife thinks she's going deaf because I talk too loud on the phone. Oh, uh, yeah, I know that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the thing that's got me talking too loud and, I, you know, it's kind of a random thing, uh, but I always look for... And I'm intrigued by markets that are about to just take off. And uh, one that I've really been sort of pumped on myself is a weird one, but it's heat pumps in the United States. Um, and so when you think about things that are, you know, huge trends over the last 10 years, obviously one of the big ones is, you know, electric vehicles. Like now, you know, you can pretty much triple your market cap as a car company if you talk about electrical vehicles. Um, <laughs> yeah. Everybody's building factories and batteries. But I think, you know, one thing people don't realize is, the same sort of revolution in technology happens with your home heating and HVAC. Um, so there's heat pumps, which is the same technology that's in a refrigerator, um, can actually be used to power your whole house. It doesn't dry the air out. It's cheaper. And I think when you look at the, you know, multi tens of billions of dollars of furnace technology in the U.S., you're going to see this totally turn over in the next 10 years. And uh, I'm really intrigued to see who gets there how the market becomes more efficient and how it sort of transforms. But it's definitely got me talking loud about it. And how did you realize this was happening? Like, how do you spot a trend? You know, I, I always tend to get trends from my personal experiences. And I think one thing I, I have learned to do in my life is just, you know, be as sort of curious as possible on what's going around. And uh, my sister's actually remodeling a house in Buffalo, Wyoming. And she was telling me about, you know, this heating system. And I was like, well, tell me about it because, you know, I'm biking home and I don't have anything else to talk about. And she said, well, you know, <laughs> I was looking at it and I'm going to install a heat pump. And I was like, heat pump? That's crazy. And once you start digging in, uh, you know, it's an absolutely huge market. And, you know, also from a climate perspective, I think people don't realize that, you know, household climate output, this is 20% of our carbon emissions as a country, uh, you know, just that is bigger than the whole carbon emissions of Germany. And so it's a pretty sizable, you know, challenge to overcome as a country. So, you know, I think just being curious, sort of diving in, and then starting to think about extrapolate, well, this is a product that clearly is superior, who's going to make the market light on fire, you know, it's always interesting to see that. And, and how is it, I mean, not to go this, make this whole episode about heat pumps, but <laughs> we'll tie it to like, front so, for sure in my daily yeah, work. You yeah, know? we'll get there. We'll get there. But how is a heat pump different? Like what makes it better? Yeah. So, you know, I think traditionally, obviously, you have your gas furnace. And while gas furnaces are incredibly good now, you know, you can get ones in the 90% efficiency. Uh, you know, one, you're still burning gas. Two, electricity is just straight cheaper than gas. Um, but three, there's a lot of things about gas that aren't great as a heating thing. It dries your air out. It makes it less, uh, you know, humid. That's why people have humidifiers. I'm from Colorado, like, you know, constantly dealing with chapped lips and stuff like that. Um, heat pump is based on, you know, water for the most part or a coolant 
running through and then air blowing over it. So you don't get that drying effect. It's like a radiator, uh, something that's a little bit better for, for the air like that. And then obviously it's cheaper to operate over the time. And I think those two factors, obviously better heat, but cheaper to operate being the primary driver of most people's choices is the re real reason why, uh, you know, eventually this technology is just going to take over. That makes sense. Well, speaking of technology that's taking over, <laughs> let's transition to front. So for people who don't know, can you tell us what is front? Yeah, great question. So Front's a customer <laughs> communication hub for business where any customer conversation can sort of make or break the relationship. Um, Front replaces sort of your traditional inbox in a company. And what it does is it actually surrounds every conversation with team collaboration capabilities, customer data, and gives you a ton of super powerful routing and analytical tools to make sure that that customer communication is responded to accurately and quick every time. So what this does is it lets teams deliver that fast, accurate, and personalized responses that strengthen relationships during every conversation. And so you basically, you integrate into all the different systems that you have is the idea, right? So you could have a different sales system and you know, uh, email on the website that's like feedback on our newsletter or something. And you basically pipe it all into to front. That's correct. And then yeah. you build rules and triage around it there. Is that the idea? That's absolutely correct. So you can think about, uh, you know, the type of communication we love doing is the type of communication where it's super relationship driven, whether that's your account management system or sort of a, a sales operation team. But, you know, I think uh, one of the, you know, I always love telling this with use cases, but a great company uh, that uses Front is actually, I'll give you an oddball one just to sort of mix it up, is actually a company called McQuilling. And what McQuilling does, their business is actually crazy right now. They are a broker for oil tankers. So if you want to move, you know, a million gallons of oil from Dubai to West Texas, they'll get a boat for you um, to actually do that. And you can imagine, you know, when I email in, they're then emailing a bunch of ships. They're trying to find the ships. They're emailing back. And there's just an absolute ton of communication. Now, you want to make sure from a company perspective that you can actually integrate that conversation uh, into all the different teams that need to be touched. So whether it's finance, whether it's operations team, everything. And then you want to actually be able to route it to the right person. And then finally, you want to be able to check and make sure that all of these emails, which represent little dollars for the organization, are getting taken care of fast and efficiently. That's awesome. Um, I want to go a little bit deeper on. So you were really like a huge advocate for adding transparency into the roadmap and what you're going to build. Can you talk about that? And Front's product roadmap is completely public now, right? Yeah. So you can go on our website, you can see what's upcoming. And I, I think this is just one facet of being sort of customer obsessed. I think, you know, obviously, at this day and age, if there's a you know product leader out there who's not talking about customer obsession, their days are numbered. I think it's like a yeah. clear, <laughs> like, you know, obvious path to go. Um, but, you know, for us, it's about really both sort of broadcasting where are we going so customers can plan around it, uh, as well as making sure that, you know, everybody can sort of check and actually give us feedback. Like, I don't see what I want on the customer app. I want to vote that up or I want to give you feedback or I want to sort of adjust there. And I think this aspect of sort of doing that in public is super important. It keeps us honest and it keeps our customers honest. And I think a lot of companies miss that feedback where even if you're delivering a feature that's super useful to a customer, there's oftentimes some bitterness. They're like, 
yeah, this is useful, but what about these 10 other things that would just be game changers for me? And you're actually missing the prioritization discussion with the customers there. And so, you know, bringing that forward, making it part of your conversation, it's something I do both obviously in our public venue, in our public roadmap, but also every time I talk to customers, I'm asking them, how do you feel about our prioritization? What would you do if you were me? And really trying to get to the bottom of how can we deliver more value for these teams and make sure they're communicating better with their customers. Was there any stress when you made the roadmap public? Like, were you stressed? Were other people stressed? Like, was your team stressed of like, uh oh, like now we have to deliver <laughs> these things on this time or like walk me through that? So thankfully, we had a version of our roadmap that was already public before I already got there. So I, the actual inception predates me, but it's never made me nervous. Look, what makes me way more nervous is to screw up that prioritization and deliver something that doesn't work for our customers. That's not going to actually drive value for them. And I think every PM on my team, and quite frankly, like the whole company should be really afraid of the day that we're not delivering as much value for the customers as we can. Like, I think, uh, you know, obviously there's lots of metrics that I look at, but one I really like hold myself personally responsible for is churn. And I think that's the ultimate arbiter of, are you driving value for your company or not? Um, especially in sort of a business to business application like front. And it's way too late if somebody churned. Like you should have caught that upstream two totally. years from there. And so anything that gives us more data on, are we doing the right thing? How can we better serve our customers is the thing we want to hunt down. And as you make that roadmap public, and I, I know you do webinars and all different sorts of things with the customers, like on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Um, when you're trying to like really innovate and do something different, do you still see glimmers of that stuff? Because I mean, front by itself is a very different thing. Oh, it's like a totally it hasn't different existed. Beast, yeah. It hasn't existed before. Um, and you're solving a problem that people don't necessarily know they yeah. have. Like they may have, but they don't know to search for it. Um, how do you think about like innovation in combined with a transparent roadmap and a more open approach? Look, I think this is one of the things where, you know, organizationally, most companies that I talk to haven't figured this out and always sit somewhere in between product marketing and product management. But I think the real gist of it, and it, this is innovation or anything else, Innovation is only half the equation. The other half is tying that innovation to a customer need, right? So back to the heat pump thing, you know, I can tell you this is the coolest technology in the world and it's going to lower carbon. But unless I just say, hey, yeah. this is cheaper and easier to install and better, unless I yeah. can speak the language of the customer and let them understand the value drivers of what I just built, the whole thing is useless. And so I really drive that home from a product perspective on everything we build making sure we clearly document what is the outcome that customers should expect from this in plain English. Like, not like, hey, we're going to hit this KPI by 4% or whatever, but like, how am I going to feel as a customer? I think Amazon is super famous for writing a press release that kind of gets the exact same thing. But this ethos of having everybody in the value chain sort of be able to, in plain English, describe how are you going to get there is the real key to explaining that innovation. So when we look at the roadmap, I'm more looking at what the outcomes people want. We can innovate on the fastest, the best way, the everything to do it. But the outcome is the key thing that we're trying to glean from all the conversations and everything else we're having. I, I love that. And I think it it's like so true. And it's so easy to get enamored with an innovative thing. Totally. And miss, miss that it actually connects with the customer need. And it's like, why is no one doing this? Or why is this confusing people? It's like, well, 
go back to what the customer is actually trying to accomplish. And if you haven't packaged it properly or it's not actually solving that problem, then it's never going to get adopted. Well, and the interesting thing, I think, uh, you know, when I'm hiring, I've been doing a ton of hiring. That's probably the other thing I'm talking to you about about is, you know, join my team at front because we're trying to triple our team this year. Uh, but I think, you know, one of the key attributes I look at from a hiring perspective in product managers is can they tie these glimmers of innovation or glimmers of customer needs? Can they take everything from everywhere and link it all together? I think what fails is when you have just customers, you know, their wishes literally translated into product. Like they generally like are giving you a problem and they want you to innovate for them. They don't want literally their thing just written down. And likewise, you know, if I talk to an engineer, they may have a genius API thing, but it needs actual translation to a key user need. Like it needs a customer application or I may have a designer who wants to do a design refresh on something, but it needs a, a purpose. And I think the product manager isn't the smartest one in the room. They're the ones who are picking out all these key threads and trying to tie all of this together into a cogent narrative where everybody can get behind it. And that skill set is difficult uh, to find, but that's been a, a key finding for me that drives, you know, what what are the best product managers? Like, what are the characteristics? That's certainly one of them that I look for. What do you think the worst product managers are like? <laughs> well, the worst product managers are the ones that come in and they're like, I have 17 ideas that I would like to ship for you. You know, I always joke around that, like, you know, uh, my three keys to product management are, you know, clear North Star prioritize and something I called the Rosetta Stone, which is a little bit what we were just talking about. Mm. But uh, that prioritization, you know, I always joke, I haven't shipped an idea of my own in like five years, you know, it's all about picking out the best pieces <laughs> from the crowd. And like, you know, it's probably true since I did my startup. But you know, it's about trying to figure out like, where are these glimmers of truth? How can I pull on them to make it great and really using the collective wisdom of the crowd and the entire sort of uh, community that's around you, whether it's customers, engineering, product design, finance, business, go to market, whatever it is, um, and really pulling that together to make the best path forward to hit that North Star. And that that's the real skill set. And I think if somebody, uh, one of our core values at front that I believe in wholeheartedly is low ego. And if somebody comes in and acts like, you know, the value that they bring as being the smartest person in the room, that's an immediate no. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's easy from the outside, like to imagine that these companies that are shipping a lot of product and the product is well received and stuff that there's like someone who's just saying like dictating yeah, like a Steve Jobs genius visionary. Exactly. And it's like, it's not only is like that not what's happening in the most well run companies, it's actually the opposite. Right. Like if someone's doing that, it's a, a pretty good sign. It's not. Gonna work. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's either going to be terrible or maybe you have a once in a million Steve Jobs type scenario. But it's certainly I bet I'd bet the farm on the opposite approach is yielding better results over time from a collective perspective. You've obviously tried a lot of stuff. Um, you've tried a lot of stuff up front and you were at Airbnb before and you had your own startup before. But was, have you ever seen a time when you're iterating on the product and it went really wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really easy to, to get stuck in dead ends uh, and sort of local maximas on a product. And, you know, I've had my biggest regrets when I kept making a system uh, that I thought could be iterated out of like, you know, hey, we have all these problems, but like we shouldn't throw it out like it's it's good. And so I'll burn another year making small tweaks to the system when the approach that we we're taking was just fundamentally flawed. And I think probably that those have been some of my worst uh, decisions as a product manager have been that type of, of scenario where what I really should have done is zagged completely and and really built something totally new. 
how do you know if you are on a local local maximum instead of on a global? Like, because I think that's a really hard thing for people, especially if you're feeling like understaffed. Like, is it our approach, or do we need to, as you're saying, zag in a much greater direction? And to be clear, I have been there <laughs> myself. Um, so just to be perfectly clear, but um, I found it hard to figure out. Like, wait, do we have to completely go back and take a step back and say, what is our customer even trying to do? And are we attacking this problem in the right way? Like, how do you know if you're on a local optimization versus global? Yeah, well, you know, I think it comes back to something we were talking about before. And, and generally, this is coupled with people's sort of, you know, uh, sacred cows, I would say, where like effectively like people feel that their personal reputation or stake is tied to a, an approach. Um, and generally, you see them manifested in the same the same time period. And so what happens is you have... A group of people, you know, be it PM or an engineering manager or a designer or somebody else um, who becomes personally invested and feels like their success at the company is due to their, you know, championing of a particular case. And I think this comes back to our low ego comments where like, you know, in those situations, what you really want to do is take a step back and just play things out in sort of a dispassionate, like, what, what do we see the occurrences here? Like, do we believe that there's a clear wind path or are we really just trying to take the easiest path out and try to make it out of there? And I think if you can take that step back, that breather, and actually do a little bit of scenario analysis and just simple on paper, generally uh, you get to things where like, well, I think we can buy six months or we can buy nine months. And the instant you hear that language, it's like, no, we should make change now. <laughs> um, it's been my experience. And so if you can buy the space, if you can sort of reduce people's anxiety that their personal reputation is banked on a particular like path, then you actually have a chance to sort of have a rational view and sort of evaluate both paths and see like, is there a future here or is there not a future here? And, and uh, if you can do that, and if you say like, hey, we're really buying, you know, months or a year or whatever here. Um, I had a, I had an old boss once who said, you know, if you think it's inevitable, you should make it immediate. Uh, and I think that's like wise advice. Like if you think you're inevitably going to go down a path, then you should just do it now because it's like, you know, wading into a cold swimming pool, like inch by inch, it's way more painful than just jumping in. Love that. Um, so you talked about you're tripling your team this year. Yeah. How do you know that tripling is right? Why not doubling? Why not quadrupling? Like, how do you end up there? And the reason I asked this question, yeah. just so you know, it's like, it can be very hard, especially, I mean, I think this is even true with like a growth company, but especially in the early stage, like, are you putting enough in to get the signal that the thing is working? Um, and that's a constant question. Should I raise money and go harder? 100%. Or do I need to not? Or am I going to like, and so I feel like it's like this proverbial, like, what's the right speed? Um, so I'm always interested to hear how people think about this. How did you all get to tripling the team? Yeah, well, so for, for one, it's certainly a year for catch up on the product side of it. And, and a lot of that was driven by exactly what you were saying. And I think, um, you know, there's a couple of key transition points in the in the chart of a company. And I've, you know, mentored a ton of companies out there. And it's something I universally see is, um, you know, the first big leap is from founders to your first PM. And that's a huge hire. It's it's a really interesting decision. And, and the criteria I always say there is, is there enough to execute outside the company vision for you to sort of enable somebody to do that, right? Do you feel like you have a solid enough company vision where you know the market, you know the customer, where they can really go and be autonomous and give leverage? Or is this somebody where you're just feeding you know, specs and stuff to and you want them to just go execute? The second path is maybe helpful, but it's not going to really drive any value for your business. 
hit that juncture where you're like, I know where we are going from a customer perspective. I know we're going from a market perspective and I can have somebody actually go out, do customer research, build a roadmap, drive OKRs. That's a great time to hire that first PM. And so to me, it's more about, you know, leverage that you're going to get from your team versus otherwise. The next big shift, I would argue, is when you go from a PM that's basically doing the entire product or, you know, at two PMs that are sort of just splitting it on a feature basis and switching to more of like a pod model where you have multiple PMs sort of autonomously covering a huge area or a persona within the company. Um, The key there is, again, do you have defined enough sort of product areas that you can actually envision for people working? And then the final jump uh, is, you know, once you're confident in these product areas, do you have enough structure and enough depth to your product that you can turn those from pods with a single PM and, you know, six to eight engineers, whatever you will, to pillars? Uh, where a group PM is sort of managing several people on a given persona. And that was the leap we just made last year. And when you, whenever you make that leap, you then suddenly have folks who are getting promoted, new group product managers, and then a huge amount of sort of backfill hiring on the root process. And so that's the jump we're in right now. I think it's relatively common as you get to a more mature company and you start looking at 10, 20, 30, 50 PMs, that that structure emerges. And that's where we are. And I think at each point, There's a set of sort of criteria, as I said, which mostly revolves around, do you have enough structure that hiring more is going to actually yield more? Like if I put a quarter in, I'll get a dollar out, which is sort of your base question. And I think uh, really it's about, you know, is there enough structure around the role that you're confident that they will get that? Are there things as you're scaling now and your, your team's getting bigger and you're increasing this investment, are there things from your time as CEO of Everlater that you're like, totally the same or exactly the opposite of what you thought they would be? (laughs) You know, I think every company has some similarities, right? Which is some of these like classic tradition and sort of organizational and operational things that uh, are relatively the same regardless of what you're in. Um, But there's a lot of other challenges that I think are extremely unique to the business and where uh, in Everlater, you know, our pivot was going from a consumer travel blog to sort of a purvey of marketing software for a travel agency. I think every company sort of needs to find its new identity and its new position as it grows, right? Front has really transitioned from a shared inbox company, which was a super sort of uh, discrete feature, which is super powerful, allowed us to go very broad and get a huge market share to a customer communication hub where we are handling full end-to-end customer conversations with powerful analytics, routing, everything else. Um, And obviously, the same innovation around, you know, collaboration, allowing people to have an inbox where you can share communication and assign and everything else. But the sophistication, the market unlocks, like one is a feature, the other is a huge chunk of the CRM industry. Like those are majorly different. And that was a very custom and sort of like front-specific first principles discovery, whereas, you know, what I did at Everlater, I think, uh, same sort of transition and, and thing, but, you know, obviously totally different domain and, and much different way that it unfolded or would have unfolded had we not sold the company. I want to talk a little bit also about like the shifts that are happening to B2B companies um, and B2B software and expectations yes. where, you know, like the consumerization of business, if you want to call it that, um, just the expectations changing on how good products need to be, even when you're at work, right? Like 15 years ago, 10 years ago, like the B2B products for the most part were trash, um, but they might've gotten the job done 
but they were like horrible to set up and you couldn't sign up yourself and it's just, you know, disaster. And now the expectations are shifting so much. Um, how do you think about that? How do you prepare for that? How do you do that? Well, look, I think, you know, by prepare, it's like, you know, this is table stakes now. If you're starting a company, you best build it this way. Um, but I think, you know, you called out some of the tectonic shifts that's gone on in, in B2B. Like if you rewind 20 years ago, like most people had servers running custom software in the basement. And so the last generation of B2B companies were like, get rid of these servers, which was, you know, a major mindset shift. But, you know, they were still, to your point, like selling to IT professionals, like not really caring about the end user. And I think one thing we've seen, especially over the last 10 years, is the rise of sort of a product-led growth motion and really making the consumer, the end user of this, one of the big champions and one of the key constituencies in, do we buy this software? Do we churn? How valuable is it? And really giving input. And as these people become bigger and bigger decision makers, as they should be, that influences, you know, what the product needs to do and really pushes companies to actually serve them. And so I think this is a huge table stakes now. Um, you know, it's certainly one of the things we think about and obsess over is what is the customer experience? Are we making them delighted, happy at every turn? And I don't think, you know, this thought of making people happy with software was, you know, even in the lexicon five, 10 years ago, whereas, you know, for us, it's actually like a top level company goal. Do you think there are other tectonic level shifts occurring in business software now that are going to totally change what it is in the next 10 years? Certainly. I think the other, like the other one that goes without saying, and sort of the table stakes one that everybody's heard about and, you know, is widely discussed is this idea that, you know, you don't need to go hire a huge consulting firm to write custom code to set up integrations and workflows, right? The whole, uh, you know, whether you want to call it no code or low code, it's all the same. To me, it's human configurability. And that extends beyond, you know, can I actually do the API connection? You know, in front, we have these incredibly complex routing workflows, right? If you have a thousand people in your organization, you're getting a million uh, pieces of communication, whether it be email or chats a week, you need actually extremely detailed routing and everything else. And as an admin of front, I need to have confidence that I can understand it. If something goes wrong or I need to modify it, I can do that on the fly. This is the way a modern company expects to work. They don't expect, hey, we want to actually change or, you know, redo our pod structure, how we do communications. And they, you know, call a consulting company and they're like, great, we'll do a six month engagement and fix it in six months. They want to go into the admin panel and fix it themselves immediately. Um, and that's both, you know, workflows, but it's also how do you integrate to the broader SaaS ecosystem? Maybe one that's, that's, uh, a little bit more controversial and more specific to the CRM space we're in. While, you know, I think the last 20 years were dominated by this notion of a single source of record for all of your customer data, it's becoming increasingly clear to me that there is no central record of customer data in an enterprise anymore. You have maybe a, a sales CRM, but then the marketing team has a bunch of information and, you know, your marketing tools, whether it's another CRM or marketing data around retargeting or anything like that, then your product has a ton of product data. Maybe that's in segment or, or another tool like that. You have all this customer context floating around. And I think once the genie's out of the bottle, I don't see it coming back in. And so I think companies that understand this will win on their integration, their ability to absorb customer data from all these different places rather than being the single source of truth. And I think we're seeing this play out in real time right now 
but it's certainly a trend that I'll bet on going forward. And certainly one of the things we think about as we develop customer awareness and how we're going to present customer data within front. So do you think of that as like almost to combine it back with what you're saying earlier, it's almost like if you have enough of the customer insights from different parts of the business and it's tightly integrated enough that you can figure out what they actually want, like what, what jobs they're trying to solve sure, yeah. and you can actually build things to deliver. And then you can build an organization to actually, you know, build those tools, build those products that it's almost like the limiting factor on growth is really just, can you bring the customer insights together? fast enough and in a robust enough way into the right folks to make decisions. Like eventually it just comes back to like, do you have the right centralized hub of customer insights? And if you do, and that's going to the right people, then that should be your limiter on how much you invest and how much you grow. I think that's one of the things, but I think you'll also see, you know, each individual application tapping into this network of data in their own specialized way. Like I think, uh, you yeah. know, what, what we're going to do as front is very different than what a marketing tool would do in the same situation because they just need access yeah. to different data and, and different insights. Um, but I do think you're going to see meta layers of, of folks who are aggregating this data as a new SaaS layer emerge. There's already a couple startups, I think, working on some of this stuff. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, this is going to be a big trend as the fragmentation of this data becomes more and more severe. Folks are going to try to aggregate it back together. But I think, you know, the reality is data is going to be made faster than you could aggregate it. And the real challenge is how do you best as a consumer of this data, where do you pick the right sources and how do you sort of aggregate that and focus continually on it yourself? I think it's a it's a big un, unsolved challenge, to be honest. It's an interesting challenge because it's so different than like, I just need to run like, this customer interview or like sit down with this customer in person. It's like, that's, you know, a very small fraction of all the insights you're going to get. And then it's like how you pull it together and how that fits into your mission and what area of the, of the market you're focusing on combining that all together. It's just very different. It's exciting. I do think the final trend I believe we're going to see, and I certainly don't see it today, but I believe it's worth betting on is, you know, Certainly over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen a huge fragmentation of the SaaS market. There's a, you know, departmental solution for every small department and every possible use case. And, you know, most companies are looking at, you know, hundreds of SaaS vendors. Um, and I do believe what we're going to eventually see is a reconvergence, like having every single department on a different tool really leads for a choppy customer journey, a customer, you know, choppy employee experience. Uh, and one where, you know, even though we have general purpose collaboration tools like Slack or Teams or something like that, really actually inhibits departmental collaboration on the core aspects when you're doing it. Um, and one of the things we're really excited about at Front is we believe, like, if you're communicating with your customer, you should do it in Front. Uh, and I think, obviously, we're starting in these very relationship-driven teams like account management operations and stuff like that. But, you know, I think eventually what you're going to see Front is sort of be the place to do it anything, whether it's sales or support or anything else. And I, I'm excited about that vision. I think customers and companies are going to be hungry for a more horizontal application. I think these super horizontal tools are eventually going to win out over the longer term. So is that what you're, you're going to do? You're just going to you know, bring it all together? Be the, Oh, there you go. Great. <laughs> I think uh, we believe that the core will always be these relationship-driven uh, conversations. But I do believe that you know having a view where eventually every piece of customer communication is on front is something that you know we believe is part of the future. And uh, you know this is a long journey. There's always going to be conversations that we don't, where especially support tools or sales tools are there. But I think 
anything that's relationship driven, sort of adding to that customer relationship that you really want to, humans to drive, that's going to be our bread and butter. And I, I believe we're already well on our way to sort of being the single stop across all these different teams around relationships. Well, Nate, I'm excited to keep following you guys and, and see what you're up to and see as you enact all of this. Thank you for being on the show. How can people connect with you in other places? Where can, where can we find you? You know, Front, obviously, you can go to front.com. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, you can follow our public roadmap there. You can get in touch with us if you believe you have a team that you would love to, to use Front. From a personal perspective, I, I also tweet quite a bit about Front and other things that are interesting to me in the tech world. Uh, I'm Nate Abbott on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, you know, post on LinkedIn, feel free to follow me on LinkedIn. But, you know, I think uh, those are the primary ways you can follow me and Front's journey out there. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. You know, I think it's important to break this stuff down. Like, what does it really take to scale building a product? If you're in it, you know, he's Nate's in it. I'm in it. You're in it. Uh, we, the, you're just, <laughs> I'm peripherally in it, but yeah. I was thinking about the product that is talking to a lot of the show. Okay, fair, fair, fair. Yeah, but like it is this like constant, all right, I put this thing out in the world. I, I get insights on how people are actually responding to it. We're trying to glean from that, like what's the same, what's different, and then how do you, you're trying to get a bunch of different people to agree and sign off on something, right? Like the talking to a lot, it's like the guest list, the topics, the order, the edits, how many episodes should be on video versus audio versus all of them. And you're, it's this constant kind of like revolution. And I thought it was interesting, like one of the lines that really stood out to me that Nate said was like, I don't think a single one of my ideas in the last five years <laughs> has been built. And he said that as like a point of pride, right? I don't know. You just, if you're not building products, it's not what you would imagine, right? You would think there's one person with an edict of like, this is what we shall build. And the truth is like, yeah, there might be like, this is a direction I think we should go in. But actually what we're building is like this combination of all of this different information and how you put it together is really the hard part. Yeah. And I think in this episode in particular, you really see like, the product growth is it's led by the customer in so many ways, right? Like we've talked about that on the show before, um, that relationship. But I feel like Nate really broke it down in a way where I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I also think about it too. Like if someone asks me for feedback on a product and I give it to them, I'm not expecting them to build word for word. Right. What I give them. I am just one data point at that moment in time trying to explain a problem, especially if I don't use that product or that have that problem that often, maybe for the first time. And so you have to assume that the data that's coming in, even an indication of the fact that someone will even write something up or have a conversation with you, right? Like right. if someone's willing to get on a phone and do an interview, they must have a real problem because most of us don't want to waste time like <laughs> right. doing random conversations with people about stuff like this. Totally. Yeah. It just also makes you feel better, I think, as a user, as an employee, that like your voice doesn't just go into the void. Like it matters. It matters to different departments and different teams at different junctures, but like it matters. Totally. We it matter. Does. It matters. We matter. We matter. You know who else really matters? Our, it's our viewers, our listeners, listeners and viewers. The audience. <laughs> Thank you, audience. We love you. Um, now that you've heard me out, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or you watch them. 
love an old five-star review. (laughs) (laughs) The shameless ask. (laughs) Um, And um, subscribe. I mean, if you're listening to this, you haven't subscribed. Wow. There's tons of more great episodes coming out every two weeks. Come on. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? (laughs) But seriously, we just, we appreciate you. We appreciate you, listener. We do. All right. Well, I think that's it. That's it? That's a wrap. I think that's, think that's a wrap. I think that's the episode. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Maria Passingham of Edit Audio. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.